Alrighty, good morning. Welcome to week two on looking at a culture of evangelism and hospitality here at Grace Fellowship. Uh, last week we were looking at the idea of public evangelism, that the term in scripture is often used to the gospel being proclaimed by um, assigned, gifted, commissioned preachers who proclaim it. And we hear the gospel proclaimed week by week in the house of the Lord. And therefore, a really great evangelism strategy is inviting people to church. Uh, people seem to get saved when they get invited to church. And so uh, that's something we want to encourage, just uh, being invitational people, those that are welcoming others to come join us in the worship of God, to hear the gospel proclaimed. So we're going to consider um, private or personal evangelism this morning. And uh, we might call this uh, evangelism in an improper sense, right? The term evangelism usually refers to this official sense. But if we use it in, say, a lowercase e sense, it's really the simple idea of communicating the gospel, communicating the good news about Jesus. Now, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we look to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reigning at the Father's right hand, being Lord over all, interceding for us. Lord, we are so rich in him, and um, just the redemption you've given us is so incredible. Would we always live in thankful recognition our whole lives long, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we're thinking of sharing our faith, communicating the gospel message to others, and it really is simply sharing the good news, the good news about Jesus. And I know this is a topic that a lot of us, we feel really guilty about, that we're not doing it enough or doing it the right way or doing as much as we could. And I I know from most of you probably here and most of the people in our church that I encounter, uh, you would love opportunities to share your faith. If you had a coworker or friend uh, say to you, hey, could you tell me what you believe or could you tell me why uh, you go to church or why you believe in Christianity, we'd be like, awesome. Like, they asked me. I'd love to talk to them. And maybe you'd wonder a bit what to say, but I think most of us would love to be able to share our faith. And then the question becomes, well, if we're lacking opportunities, what do we do about it? And so when we hear messages on evangelism and we feel we have this forthright um, command to be going about and sharing our faith, we often think of it in uh, two applications or two senses. The first would be going and making opportunities by just finding people, say, on the street to just say, I want to tell you about Jesus or have a talk like that. Just go and make those opportunities happen. Or secondly, that we have a constant obligation to try to find a way to turn every conversation into a gospel sharing opportunity. And so we think that either you need to have street witnessing skills where you can boldly, forthrightly just go up to people and share or you need to have a, a very um, um, a, a skillful extroversion where you're just able to turn your conversation with the checkout clerk or barista to spiritual things effortlessly and just make those opportunities happen. And what both of these sorts of ideas have in common is they're both um, initiatory, they're both proactive, uh, they're both going on the offense, as it were, um, in order to make those opportunities happen. And... When we actually see this sort of one-way, forthright evangelism in Scripture, that's usually public evangelism, where it's a monological, it's one way, um, a presentation being given. 
And personal evangelism, in how we're commanded and given examples in Scripture, is most often dialogical. It's most often two-way. Um, not often proactive, but reactive. More responsive than intrusive. Um, and what I want us to see is, I want us to um, alleviate any, I think, unnecessary, unbiblical burdens that we might be feeling, but also encourage a biblical personal evangelism that I think is exciting and doable that we can all be engaged in. And I think I mentioned last week, or I'll just note again, um, we'll see if we have time for questions at the end. Just in this format, it's easier to group them all to the end. There is a, um, a surprising lack in the New Testament of instructions related to personally sharing our faith and evangelizing others. There's, um, and I'd, I'd be happy to be proven wrong on this, but as far as I can research and tell, there's not one command in the New Testament to share your faith. And that might come as a shock to you. Uh, there is a lot of talk about uh, public proclamation and preaching, but there's actually no command that says that you need to be sharing your faith or telling people about the gospel. Now, of course, it's implied that we love the gospel and we will naturally share it and delight to do so. But I want us to consider what does the New Testament actually say about how we should be speaking with unbelievers? There's, as far as I could find, three passages in the New Testament that directly address how we speak and use words in our interactions with unbelievers. And I think that this is going to be really instructive for us when we think about sharing our faith. And then we're going to look at um, all the examples I could find in the New Testament where a personal evangelistic encounter actually occurs. So I want us to try to learn principles from both these few passages that give a direct instruction and then the examples and see what we can learn from that. Fair enough? All right, okay. Angels, man, in the slides back there. So we're going to first look at Colossians 4, verse 5, which says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we notice here that it's a direct address to how we are relating to outsiders, right? Those outside the faith. And we want to redeem this time with them and walk wisely towards them. And so when we're considering what does wise speech before outsiders look like, it looks first like gracious speech. Gracious speech. And notice here that Paul seems almost more concerned with the character of the speech than what is the actual content. Often the way we say things and the manner of our delivery speaks more sometimes than the words we actually say. And this is supposed to be well-seasoned speech, speech seasoned with salt. When you season something with salt, it's more tasty, it's more delightful to the senses, more attractive. It's something you want more of. And that's the sort of speech we're supposed to be displaying. And notice also that it says that you may know how you ought to answer each one. That's implying their dialogue, that someone's asked you a question or challenged something and you are responding to them. Um, and it says that you need wisdom to answer each person, which means that we need in our speech with unbelievers Wisdom to answer them specifically according to their particular needs. We want to be careful that we don't want to get so wrapped up in I need to say my piece and give my, present my package that we miss the opportunity to respond wisely to where they're actually at, presenting it for their particular circumstances. 
And we hear a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, where we read, Have no fear of them, that is, those outside who might be persecuting, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So it talks first about having no fear to speak a word for Christ. Um, even if there might be some negative repercussions or some fear of what people would think, um, to, to not be feared to stand up for Christ. But again, notice that he says to do it with gentleness and respect. The focus on the manner and the character of the delivery is really, really important. That in our interactions, we're displaying that fruit of the Holy Spirit. It talks about giving a defense, or that is giving reasons. We read often that Paul reasoned with people when he talked with them, which again implies dialoguing. It implies a give and take. It implies knowing what their actual objections and problems are so that you can respond appropriately to that person as an individual person. That is, the message is going to be tailored to the actual questions that are being asked. So similarly, 1 Peter and Colossians are saying very similar things here, that in our speech with outsiders, we want to be responsive and dialogical in how we relate. Similarly, Ephesians 4, verse 25, says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And when we consider speaking the truth, the gospel is often called the word of truth. We want to be people that are not afraid to tell the truth. That doesn't mean we have to force a truth into any and every particular circumstance, but being ready to never lie, to not obfuscate what we believe because we fear it might be offensive. Again, with gentleness and respect, but to not fear to just state the truth, the way we've been taught it, the way we know it of Scripture, the truth of God in Christ. We don't want to put it under a basket. And we want to answer honestly without fear. And really, that's almost every text that talks anything specifically about how we speak with unbelievers. And let's consider how we might see these sorts of principles in the New Testament and the actual examples where personal evangelism occurs. I'm going to uh, run through the ones of Christ, and then we will um, slow down on a few examples in Acts. And this is basically every example I can find, so I'm not actually skipping ones here. So you have uh, John 3 and 4, and there's no slides for this, Angel. Um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and they have a conversation based on what he's wondering about, and Jesus talks specifically to his issues um, as a Pharisee, the things he particularly needs to hear. But first, Nicodemus comes to him. He wants to know. He's inviting Jesus to respond. Next chapter over, in John chapter 4, Jesus happens upon a woman at the well. Jesus is there, she's coming to get water, and they just start up a conversation. And there's no full even gospel presentation here, but Jesus challenges her on a few specific points in her life, a few specific sins personal to her that she's walking in, and they have a conversation related to worship based on her as a Samaritan. It's personalized very differently than his conversation with Nicodemus, and it's addressing her as a person and her uniqueness. It's not the same thing he's saying to both of them, though they're both leading the people towards the kingdom of God. 
but in particular and personal ways. Uh, the rich young, young ruler in Mark 10, he comes to Jesus. He asks him what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus, again, doesn't give him a full pr presentation, but he challenges one specific sin in his life, the sin of greed and materialism, and he leaves away sad, unconverted. A few chapters, or a few times later in Luke 20, Zacchaeus, similarly greedy and wealthy, Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, and it says Zacchaeus rejoiced at this. So it means Zacchaeus did want Jesus to come. Jesus wasn't fully intruding on an unwilling host. And Zacchaeus does re re repent and show the fruits and giving away his wealth. Even Jesus had some unsuccessful uh, personal encounters with people. And again, in uh, Luke 24, think of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He happens to be walking alongside some other travelers, and he opens up with, what are you talking about as you walk? <laughs> like, isn't that just such a great, great conversation? You just like, you know, after church, you just kind of like walk on up to a group that's talking. It's like, what are you guys talking about? Enter into the conversation, uh, but in an open way. In a way, you're asking a question, and then based on what they're talking about, he has a very natural opportunity, Jesus does, uh, to tell them about what's been going on and to tell them about the scriptures um, as they just walk and talk. And if you look at Jesus' encounters with people in general, you again notice that he tailors the message to their particular needs. He calls them to a specific re repentance. Uh, this never seems to be like a forceful, intruding conversation. Jesus is mostly just forceful with the Pharisees. And also interestingly, Jesus often asks these people, he responds to their questions with more questions. He sometimes doesn't even give them an answer, but responds with a challenging question in return that is almost meant to just make them stop and think, to reconsider. Um, he often asks even thing, questions that are confusing, but that at the same time pierce to the heart. Um, there, there, there's a good book by a guy named Randy Newman called Questioning Evangelism. Not questioning evangelism, but a questioning form of evangelism. And he goes through all these examples where Jesus responds to questions with questions. And he talks about how questions really help um, expose the depths of people's hearts. And when we ask questions, we're drawing out things that are close to them and valuable, and we often can get to deeper layers um, through that question and response. Really, the Jewish method was always to answer a question with a question. And that's how you got places and learned. And show, it shows a care and a welcome to that person, a care for them particularly. Alrighty, let's consider the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts 8. Okay, this is an awesome example of Philip, and let's read this text. Uh, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Notice again, Philip, he's bold to, to, to go up, and yet there's a response to an invitation. Uh, notice, first of all, Philip is open to the Spirit's leading. 
Uh, here we're told the Philip or the Spirit said to Philip. We don't know exactly what that was. But similar for us, we want to be open to how God might guide us, whether by impressions or just what's on our own hearts. He's open to the Spirit's leading. He goes up and starts with a very um, inviting question. He just asks him if he understands what he's reading. You know, kind of like Jesus says, what are you talking about? He's kind of like, what are you reading? What are you getting out of it? And then he invites Philip to come up and join him. Philip doesn't just jump in the chariot, assume this is his one chance. He's invited, and then they have a conversation. He, he, the, the man he's with selects the passage that they're looking at, and from there, Philip has a perfect opportunity to naturally speak of the things of Christ to someone who's receptive, who's invited, and they're actually sitting, dialoguing together. He responds to an invitation, and yet he's bold enough to, it says he opens his mouth and told him the good news of Christ. So there is a boldness in his starting the conversation. There's a boldness to open his mouth, but there's still an invitation and a natural responsiveness. Um, in Acts 10, Cornelius, he requests Peter to come and share the gospel with him. Don't, I don't have that on the slides. And Cornelius actually invites a bunch of his friends to, to come and hear this guest speaker. And Peter there is responding to an invitation from Cornelius. Or consider Acts 16. Acts 16. There we go. And the jailer called for lights, right? After the prison doors open, the jailer's worried Paul and Silas are running away and he's going to be killed. They don't. They stick around. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what, I, what must I do to be saved? He asks a question, asking them. He basically invites them to tell him the gospel. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So notice, they stuck around. They made sure they were around if an opportunity would be available. And they're invited not only to share the gospel with this jailer, but with his whole family as well. He brings them into his life. Acts 24, after some days, Felix came. Acts 24. There we go. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Now, Paul doesn't really have a choice in this matter. He is in chains. But... Paul is having frequent conversations with Felix. It says they're reasoning together. That is, there's a back and forth. They're talking about self-control, the coming judgment. And this is an often thing they're doing. They're frequently talking about spiritual things together. And it's interesting also, Paul wasn't, doesn't seem to have been successful, even though he was frequently reasoning. This great mind who's talking about spiritual things with Felix, we never see anything about Felix turning in faith. So even Paul, even Jesus, not all their encounters uh, saw people change. And so I think, again, from the principles and from these examples, I think it's clear that when it comes to personal, one-on-one -on -one sharing the gospel and scripture, there's always a sort of dialogue implied, an answering each one, a sort of personal connection that's specific and careful and not just a flat blanket, um, same meal being delivered to everyone. And so I want to bring this all together and just give um, a few different points of 
things for application for us, and some ways I think might be helpful for us to think. So first, I want to ask us, are we prepared to have our um, schedules interrupted for these sorts of personal encounters? Are we open to the leading of the Spirit like Philip to be ready to respond if an opportunity um, presents itself? Are we praying to God for opportunities to have these sorts of dialogical personal encounters? Um, if you're like me, you might be a person that just likes getting things done, and it's so easy for me to just put in my earbuds everywhere I go and just march. Um, and even if I'm praying for opportunities, I'm not really being open to uh, the people that are around me and in my path. Um, are we open and just keeping our eyes alert and looking for what the Holy Spirit might be working in our immediate environment as we're going about? And are we willing to obey that sort of internal urge or impulse when we feel like we ought to perhaps talk to someone or uh, do an act of kindness? Um, one of my profs in seminary used to say that uh, whenever you have feel any urge to pray, immediately stop what you're doing and pray. Because he said that, that urge will pass very quickly. And if you say, well, I'll finish up what I'm doing and then I'll pray, he says, no, drop it and pray. Never deny that internal urge you all of a sudden might feel to pray. And I think similarly, if you feel that urge, uh, someone catches your eye and there's this sense of, I think I need to talk to them or say something or just bring up a conversation, uh, that's something we want to be ready to respond to. And that does take a measure of boldness. And so now in conversations with people, I think a question for us is, are we interested enough about others and curious enough about them to even have sustained conversation? Um, if we're so intent on steering a conversation so that we can get to the point where we can say the thing we most want to say, um, is that showing honor to the person as an actual conversation partner? Uh, we, we might think it's the most loving thing to just be able to say our piece, but if we're not even loving a person enough to know anything about them, um, perhaps it's more about us than it actually is of them. We don't want to be approaching people with an agenda. We know when someone's approaching us with an agenda. Um, if you've ever had someone uh, that's perhaps in, they invite you over for dinner, a friend from like a few years ago, and you're like, wow, this person reached out. That would be great. We go over for dinner, and then you're half an hour in, and you realize they're just trying to sell you uh, their special juice that's going to cure all your ailments. And you're like, wow, you didn't actually care to reconnect with me at all. You just wanted to sell me juice. And people can feel that same sort of um, impersonal connection um, if they feel like all they are is an agenda for us to get something off our chest and then we're done with them. Uh, yes, we want to speak about Christ, but if we're doing it without any care for the person as a person, that's problematic and doesn't seem to be biblical. We want to follow Christ's command to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How would you want someone to present their beliefs to you, to try to reason and convince you? You'd want them to hear you out, even as you would hear them out. You would want a give and take. You would want a true um, relational conversation. Um, so we're not just focused on clearing a path so we can fire the thing we want to fire in, but we want to be digging deeper. And with anyone, the more you get to know someone, you start off with, say, external things, right? You get to know the basics, where you live, where you grew up, what you do for work. But as you are truly curious about someone, you start to dig down into different levels. 
you start to get to know what do they value, what do they care about, what do they love. And in a personal getting to know you, the more you're getting to that level of values and what people want, the more you're getting to where the spiritual conversations really lie. And if someone trusts that you care about them enough to know the external things about them, then the mid-level things, that's when there's going to be the most trust to actually be able to walk around in that core area, to really navigate um, a spiritual space with one another, because you mutually trust each other to be able to care for one another's uh, deep feelings and longings, to not be dismissed, to, to not just be um, put to the side, but to be honored when we do open up one with another. And we don't want to treat people, again, like flat objects. We give everyone the same thing. But like these examples, we dignify each person's uniqueness by knowing what is unique about them. I heard a speaker one time talk about what he called gospel runways, that there's different avenues, different on-ramps, if you were, uh, for the gospel, that we want to look at what is the sin that's holding this person back? What are the doubts and questions they have and responding appropriately to them? And again, in this, we want to also remember this focus on the character of the speech, sometimes above the content of the speech. Sometimes we can be so worried that we won't know the answer if they ask us about something to do with faith and science. I, I'm not smart enough about that. I don't know. Or they challenge um, something in culture, and we just aren't quite sure how to respond. Um, that's okay. But we want to always be approaching with this manner of this graciousness, seasoned speech, gentleness, and respect. And to have respect for someone because of their character, uh, then when they say they, they don't know an answer or they're not quite sure how to respond, there's still an openness because the person is um, approachable and winsome and winning. And so you can be honest. You don't need to obfuscate to try to pretend like you know what you're talking about. Uh, you can be honest. And when we do consider the instructions in the New Testament about how we relate to unbelievers, the main thing we're called to is to love our neighbors. We're not, like I said, there's no command that says we have to just go proactively and just um, get the message out to each person possible, max it out, but we are called to love them, which is going to involve um, grace, gracious, Christ-honoring, truthful speech that we are delighting to speak of the things of the Lord, the things of truth, the things of life uh, when we are with others. And therefore, I think perhaps one of the best skills we can learn, as if we want to be better at these sorts of evangelistic dialogues, is to really learn to cultivate a spirit of curiosity. I fear we're too often just very incurious about others. And learning that skill of actually being interested in people is a really important skill to cultivate. Uh, a genuine interest, where you're approaching someone on their terms, not with your own agenda in mind. And again, this is something I struggle with. Uh, often we like talking about our things. We're just waiting for someone to ask us a question about one of our hobbies or something so we can start talking. But to actually be curious about others, actually interested in them, that's a really important heart to cultivate. And when we're considering this, the reason why this sounds a bit odd and it seems shocking to us, perhaps, that we don't actually find explicit commands to um, win souls one-on-one -on -one in the New Testament, is that in America, we've been very influenced by Methodism. 
Uh, Methodism was the theology of the revivals, especially in the 1800s. And it changed a lot of the what was formerly the Reformed understanding about how God works in changing people's lives. So the historic Reformed understanding was that even though conversion is a, one, is a once-in-a-moment event where the heart's brought to life, we weren't expected to usually know when that was or to see it. But it was expected that just as when children grow up in the church, they're to grow up into the faith, though they will at some point be converted, it was expected that this happens over time and is a process that we see come to full fruit at some point. And same with unbelievers, that they would be brought into the church, cate- um, catechism classes, learning the faith, sitting under the preaching of the word week by week, and that uh, faith would be growing. We might not know when it first evidences or not, but um, as Jesus said in that parable, you first see, see, see the, the grain coming up, then you see the full ear, then the full head in the ear, And at some point, the evidence is clear. And there was a move away from this idea that just we trust that the Spirit's already at work in lives, right? This is a Calvinistic understanding. The Spirit is already active before us. And we're coming alongside what God's doing in people's life, no matter where they're at, and we're just bringing them along. And in general, hasn't it been your experience that people are, they come to true faith in Christ as they are enfolded into the life of the church, and sit under the preaching of the word week by week, right? We talked about that public evangelism last week, that there's a bringing in and continual conversations, continual reasoning, and the word takes root. We perhaps don't know when. It's, it's rare that there is an instantaneous, um, wild conversion in the moment that's evident and knowable. And this was the revivalistic mentality that... We were meant to look primarily for instantaneous, radical, personal conversions. And this led to a lot of manipulative techniques to try to force those to happen by the will of man. It was high-pressure tactics for instant results. And it's this idea that, that the way the gospel works usually in a Methodistic arrangement is that the gospel's like a bomb, that if you just can lob enough grenades out there on the street to people... Uh, They go off and people just get, boom, transformed. As opposed to the gospel working more like a slow-release capsule that as we're bringing people into the church, um, there's transformation happening. It's slower and we trust the spirits working in it. And what happens then is that evangelism almost becomes a superstitious act where if you just get the words right, you get the right amount of laws given in the right order at the right time, you can expect that there will be this instantaneous act. And that led to a lot of different um, man-driven techniques. And um, Ian Murray says that revivalism is a man-engineered, technique-driven, and numbers-focused approach to religion, emphasizing manipulation and emotionalism. And it's something we need to watch out for, um, infecting also our minds. And so, um, if I was to sum up, I think we really need to be open to and anticipating opportunities where we might have good conversations with people, right? A prayerful openness for opportunities. Secondly, that we need to work on being genuinely interested in others. Thirdly, that we need to honor people's individuality by hearing them out and responding to their specific needs and objections. And I think if we can focus on these things, I think we will be growing in how we share the gospel and how we care for others. 
Uh, when I was studying for a paper in seminary, um, there was a study that looked at a few different large churches or churches that had been fast growing with new converts, people really getting plugged in, really getting discipled, and they were trying to find commonalities of what made these churches evangelistically successful. And one of the interesting conclusions they came to was that these churches, uh, they actually didn't talk about evangelism per se that much, but they really talked a lot about loving their neighbors. And whenever the church was just concerned with how can I love this person, do them good, it always ended up including bringing them into church, sharing the word of Christ with them. But it was out of this desire to just love and care and show interest as opposed to need to nail this technique-driven formula. And th those churches saw a lot of growth and fruitfulness. And um, if you have a bit of time, I want to read a passage from J.I. Packer that I feel like uh, probably better articulates a lot of what I've been saying and comes with a little bit more authority than me. Uh, but before I do that, I want to see if there's any uh, pressing questions. Yeah, Ben was just saying there that um, often our conversations with others is an overflow of what's going on in our own lives. And so if we're consistent filling up on word and meditation and prayer, um, we're much more ready to overflow in how we speak with others. So we want to, yeah, be caring for our own soul in that as well. Yeah, good, good comment. Yeah, and I want to say even just like in our conversations, to not think that a conversation with an unbeliever was a failure because we never got to the point where we felt like we were able to give a four-point gospel presentation. But more, were we genuinely curious and interested and really showing them honor in who they are as a person, telling the truth, not obfuscating, uh, but being genuine. And I think we ought not then feel like we were some failure, but we showed love, we showed care, and we showed interest. Yeah, David. Mm -hmm. Yeah, David was just saying that, you know, in Acts 16, the jailer's hearing them praising the Lord, and perhaps that's even preparing the way. He's seeing an amazing act that they're singing praises in this terrible circumstance. And that's what we're going to look at next, because the idea of witness. This is actually one of the bigger things that the New Testament talks about when it talks about our interactions with unbelievers, the primary thing it talks about is actually our holiness and our walk and our conduct. This is, these are the ones just about our speech, but there's a huge emphasis on our conduct, witnessing, 
that might lead to these sorts of conversations we're talking about. Uh, so tune in for that. Um, I'm just going to grab this book here so we can... Okay, this is, uh, this is pretty lengthy, but uh, it's really good. He says, By now I hope it's becoming clear to us how we should regard our evangelistic responsibility. Evangelism is not the only task that our Lord has given us, nor is it a task that we are all called to discharge in the same way. We're not all called to be preachers, we're not all given equal opportunities or comparable abilities for personally dealing with men and women who need Christ, but we all have some evangelistic responsibility which we can't shirk without failing to love both our God and our neighbor. To start with, we all can and should be praying for the salvation of unconverted people, particularly in our family and among our friends and everyday associates. And then we must learn to see what possibilities of evangelism our everyday situation holds and to be enterprising in our use of them. It's the nature of love to be enterprising. If you love someone, you're constantly trying to think of what is the best you can do for him, how best you can please him. And it's your pleasure to give him pleasure by the things you devise for him. If then we love God, Father, Son, and Spirit for all that they've done for us, we shall master all our initiative and enterprise to make the most of what we can of every situation for their glory. But one further point must be added, however, lest what we have said be misapplied. It must never be forgotten that the enterprise required of us in evangelism is the enterprise of love, an enterprise that springs from a genuine interest in those we seek to win and a genuine care for their well-being and expresses itself in a genuine respect for them and a genuine friendliness towards them. One sometimes meets a scalp-hunting zeal in evangelism, both in the pulpit and on a personal level, which is both discreditable and alarming. It's discreditable because it reflects not love and care, nor the desire to be of help, but arrogance and conceit, and pleasure in having power over the lives of others. It's alarming because it finds expression in a ferocious psychological pummeling of the poor victim, which may do great damage to sensitive and impressionable souls. But if love prompts and rules our evangelistic work, we shall approach other people in a different spirit. If we truly care for them, and if our heart truly loves and fears God, then we shall seek to present Christ to them in a way that is both honoring to him and respectful to them. We shall not try to violate their personalities or exploit their weaknesses or ride roughshod over their feelings. What we shall be trying to do, rather, is to show them the reality of our friendship and concern by sharing with them our most valuable possession. And this spirit of friendship and con concern will shine through all that we say to them, whether in the public or in private, however drastic and shattering the truths that we tell them may be. And I just find um, that that's from Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. And um, yeah, I felt like I really resonated with what he was saying there. Um, and there's more... And there's more more, more on that, but find that uh, and read it for yourself. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will love as you have loved us, that we will be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and reflect your love in this world, that we will love people both body and soul, that we will love them as individuals and express genuine care and concern curiosity and interest, that we would love seeing your creation displayed before us, the uniqueness of the image of God in each person, and get to know others in their fears and longings, in the depths of their hearts, 
that we would be able to share on a heart level, Lord, that you would give us such a love and an ability to connect in deep ways where we can share the truth of Christ. Lord, we do delight that Christ's truth would be shared, that the gospel message would be spread far and wide, and we pray that you would use us. We pray, Lord, that you will bring us more opportunities to engage people in gospel dialogues, that you will give us a readiness and responsiveness to when opportunities present themselves, and a boldness to begin conversations and to open our mouth to speak the truth. Lord, would you alleviate any um, unbiblical guilt or condemnation and free us to live as joy-filled people who love to know others and to share the gospel, to speak of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all that he's done for us. Lord, would you bless our worship this morning? Would the gospel go forth with power, even unto the converting and the changing of the lives of those who are here? Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.